What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets in the car, while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hello and welcome back to Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. I am Movie Mike on Twitter and Instagram at Mike Destro. That's D-E-E-S-T-R-O. Got a good one for you guys this week where I am talking about box office bombs that went on to be classics. So this means movies that we all hold near and dear to our hearts and love yeah, we loved these movies, but it, when they first came out, turns out they didn't do so well at the box office. And I'll explain why they didn't do so well and how they were able to kind of recoup their money after the losses and go on to be the movies that we know and love. I'll even go into detail what actually qualifies as a box office bomb. So it's actually a pretty cool eclectic list I got for you guys. So stick around and listen to that one. I'll also be reviewing the brand new Judd Apatow movie starring Pete Davidson called The King of Staten Island. I posted on my Instagram story over the weekend that I was watching it, had a bunch of messages wondering what I thought about it because I think a bunch of people are kind of wondering, is it worth the 20 bucks to rent? So I will let you know if it is, in fact, worth that money. And it was also bound to happen. I hate to do it, but we have another round of movies delayed because of the coronavirus and some pretty big ones on the list. And it's kind of starting to look like, well, and it's kind of starting to look like, will we get any kind of a summer blockbuster season looking pretty slim? So we'll get into all that again. Thanks to everybody for hanging out and coming and checking out the podcast every single Monday when I put brand new episodes of this up there on the feed. If you don't mind, hey, take a screenshot wherever you're listening to this episode right now. And tag me in it in your Instagram story. I'll repost a bunch of those. And if you post it on your main feed, make sure you tag me in that so I can add those to my story too. And if you don't mind, you're listening on Apple Podcasts, hit that five-star rating, write a quick little review. Because I'm trying to knock out some of these other movie podcasts in the category. I'm trying to get it up there towards that top spot. So, so if you do that, it helps me climb up and get past those podcasts I've been looking to overcome. All right, with all that said, how about, yeah, let's do it. Let's get started. In a world where everyone and their mother has a podcast, one man stands to infiltrate the ears of listeners like never before in a movie podcast. 
A man with so much movie knowledge, he's basically like a walking IMDb with glasses. From the Nashville Podcast Network, this is Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. So today we are talking about box office bombs that went on to be classics. These are all movies that you probably know and love, but what you may not know or may not remember is they actually didn't perform well at the box office. So first of all, let's get into what a box office bomb is. So essentially it's a movie that either made no profit or it was a profit that was much smaller than was anticipated because sometimes they put these really big budgets in these movies that are supposed to be big instant Hollywood hits but then when they get out of the theaters they're like oh we only made that amount of money that's really not what we were expecting and then in other cases it's where they pumped so much money into a movie and then they got absolutely nothing in return so those are just the biggest bombs that you can imagine and what I'm talking about in this episode are not movies that were the biggest box office bombs of all time. I'm talking about movies that just didn't perform well at the box office. But now that doesn't even really matter because they are so beloved, whether it was through DVD sales, VHS sales back in the day, or over time they have just become classics that we know and are a part of our lives. But really, they didn't do so well when they first came out. So I'll explain why some of these didn't do so well and how they ended up coming back and becoming classics. So first of all, let's go way back to the OG. I'm talking about The Wizard of Oz, which came out in 1939, a long time ago. And not only is this a classic, it is essentially one of the most iconic movies of all time because everybody remembers this story, whether you've even seen it or not. I knew references to this movie. I knew what this movie was about as a kid, even before I watched it. And it's iconic in the sense of you have that scene from it going to black and white to color and then the story through Dorothy that it tells. All these things are just really classic elements in the movie. But that movie didn't perform so well at the box office when it came out back in the day. When it first opened in 1939, it wasn't even able to recuperate the $3 million that it what cost to make the movie. It ended up being a $1.1 million loss for MGM, which is the studio that made the movie and was considered a failure at the box office. And the thing about The Wizard of Oz and kind of what I see a lot of in box office bombs is that fantasy is a really hard genre to sell and to be successful because it can go one of two ways. With fantasy, it's already putting out a kind of movie out there that's going to take some just adaptation for the audience to get. And if you don't get the story in a fantasy movie, it can easily be seen as just something that you're not interested in. A lot of these big box office bombs that you see are movies that either spent so much in like special effects or just all this crazy stuff that they put into it to create this whole entire CGI world that they end up losing a lot of money. And when you're creating a story about fantasy, there is always that risk you run that maybe you spent too much on graphics and not enough on the story and people don't get it. And therefore, you're setting yourself up for either to lose a lot of money or if it is a successful movie, you make a lot of money on the end. But fantasy is just a tricky genre altogether. But where Wizard of Oz kind of made their money back is in all the rebroadcasts of the movie being shown on TV. And after it started to be played year after year and ended up making money a lot that it wasn't able to make at the box office, it was made by bringing it to people's homes and actually being able to take it in and digest it and watch the movie for what it was. And then it's the movie that we know today that spawned off many plays and all these other things and just a movie that we see as a classic. But, you know, when it first came out, didn't do so well. 
And since we're back in the day right now, I'll keep it there and I'll talk about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is actually one of my favorite movies of all time. But when it came out back in 1971, it didn't really get received so well, mainly because it was made and seen as a kid's movie, but it had a lot of dark humor, some even like some cynicism. It was just wasn't your typical kid's movie that moms didn't really want their kids to see it. So it didn't do so well at the box office. It came in on the opening weekend and made about a million dollars and ended up making around four million, but it cost three million to make. So it did make some money, but really not what they were expecting with what they put into this movie. So much so that Paramount Pictures is the one who originally made this movie. They sold the rights to Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers got it for like a really great deal. They bought it for about five hundred thousand dollars. And then they swooped in and are like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to market this movie to TV stations. And as soon as they started doing that and started getting this played on TV, they made a lot of money. And not only that, they kept the rights and made the remake of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and still own the rights to the Willy Wonka franchise to this day. Like they have creative control over the story, all because Paramount thought it wasn't a great investment and decided to sell it off so they were able to essentially get a three million dollar movie for about five hundred thousand dollars and now own a classic because it didn't do so well at the box office when it came out back in the day all right let's now go kind of closer to the present time a movie that i recently just watched for the first time because it's on netflix right now is scott pilgrim versus the world now i heard a lot of buzz about this movie and among my like friend group a lot of people like this movie but for some reason i just thought it wasn't for me and I think that's kind of what the problem that this movie had when it came out is it didn't really know its audience because it's kind of a movie that transcends a bunch of genres. You have Michael Sarah who's in the movie, and it kind of plays this balance of being a comedy, but then like being like a almost an anime video game action drama. So it has all those things going for it. I think when it came out, it just really wasn't known how to market this movie. So I think for the mainstream, it really wasn't seen as having like a clear like, OK, this is what this movie's about. I think it was kind of like marketed as like a superhero kind of comedy movie. But really what I liked about this movie is that it is so different and it's so weird and quirky and has this personality that within about 10 minutes, you're like, oh, this is something like I've never seen before. So the movie cost about 60 million to make, but it only made about 47 million dollars at the box office. So it is kind of a flop when you think about it in those terms, but it's a movie that I know a lot of people say it's one of their favorite movies. And I think it's a lot of because it is so different and it's kind of in his own genre. But not only that, it has like a really great cast that when you go and look at it, you're like, holy crap, Chris Evans is in this movie. Aubrey Plaza is in this movie. Anna Kendrick is in this movie. There's all these people in this movie at like a very early point in their career and you watch it and you're like, holy crap, this is like a time capsule for all these great actors in this really cool, unique movie. So I ended up really enjoying it and liking it a lot more than I thought I was. I know I'm 10 years late on this one, but for me, I'm a big comic book movie fan and this one kind of not really in that world, but kind of a step to the side of that to where it took like almost like video games and made it into a great movie and brought all this action into it and quirkiness that I ended up really enjoying and I can see why it's such a cult classic now. So if you're into that kind of superhero sci-fi genre and you haven't seen Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, I suggest checking it out right now on Netflix. All right, here's one from my childhood and maybe yours too. So every year when Halloween rolls around, I love it because I love a good horror movie. But not only that, I just like the regular happy, fun Halloween movies. And I think this one embodies that to a T. 
talking about Hocus Pocus. Now, when it came out, it was seen as a flop and didn't do so well, but I think it had a lot of things going against it when it came out. So when this movie first came out, it didn't do so well at the box office. It's opening weekend. It only made about $8 million. And all in all, this movie cost $28 million to make. So that opening weekend, you're not really making your money back. But over its course, it ended up making about $39 million. But what I think this one had going against it was that it was released on the very same day as Free Willy. Now, back in the 90s, one of the biggest movies I remember was Free Willy. Everybody talking about that movie. So when you go up against something like that, and I mean, it came out in the summer, so it was really targeted as, you know, a summer kids movie to get those kids in the theaters. And then later, once Halloween rolled around, it would be ready to, you know, buy on VHS at the time which is kind of when it started to make its money back. But now, really, it's making its money by being shown every single year around Halloween. And for me, it's not really Halloween without watching this movie on TV. And it's one you've probably seen more than once without even trying. So, of course, you got to call it a Halloween classic. But just know that when it first came out, it really wasn't even seen as a success. All right, let's keep it in the 90s with a movie called Office Space, a classic cult comedy when it came out back in the 90s and one that I know a lot of people say is their favorite movie of all time written and directed by Mike Judge who is one of my favorite people he also did King of the Hill Idiocracy he did Beavis and Butthead I actually got a chance one time to go see him speak and I thought it was amazing I like Mike Judge's humor because while it's seen as come almost like very like simple down like comedy I think it's really smart like I know Beavis and Butthead probably isn't the most like intellectual thing you can watch but I find his comedy just has like this kind of edge to it that it does take a lot of creativity and it just is it does take some thought to be that juvenile sometimes and that's what I like about his work and I think Office Space is probably his best movie because it kind of combines that but unfortunately it was seen as a box office disappointment when it cost 10 million dollars to make and only made about 12.2 million dollars at the box office and opening weekend it landed in about the eighth slot which isn't great because at the time he was really only known for his animated stuff beavis and butthead do america just came out but this was his first live action comedy and the first real depiction of i ever saw of a comedy taking place in like an office workspace at least is what i remember growing up but now you see this movie everywhere. If you were on the internet at all, you've probably seen an office space meme without realizing it. You've maybe even seen it parodied in like TV shows like Family Guy. I think it's a very funny movie. It's a very quotable movie and a movie you go back and realize, whoa, Jennifer Aniston did something else in the 90s that wasn't Friends. So while it didn't do so great at the box office, it was able to make a lot of money once it came out of VHS. And back in the day when you went to Blockbuster to buy the actual VHS tape or rent it, that's where it kind of was like, okay, it's a movie I'll go see and watch at my house instead of going to see it in theaters. And then Comedy Central, once it came around, they played this. I felt like every single day you would turn on Comedy Central and there would be office space. I think it's a great movie and one that'll still make me laugh today. This next one's pretty surprising, not only because it went on to win and be nominated for so many awards, but when it came out, it was just seen as not a great success. But I feel now makes the list is probably one of the greatest movies of the 90s. But it came out in a year where there was like maybe one of the greatest movie years of all time. 1994 where you have like Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, The Lion King. And here comes Shawshank Redemption which went on to receive a bunch of Academy Awards. Didn't win for Best Picture. But overall had seven Oscar nominations and became the most rented film of 1995. So that's a bunch of things going for it. What it didn't have though 
was the clout at the box office because it cost $25 million to make and only made about $28 million in its entire run. So not very great. The opening weekend only made close to a million, didn't even cross that million dollar mark. So kind of flopped out of the gate, but it had so many great reviews and so many just positive things said about the movie that it was kind of eclipsed that it came out and debuted at number nine behind a Rosie O'Donnell comedy at the time. And I think what's kind of surprising about this is that we know it as the kind of movie that we maybe sometimes associate Morgan Freeman with and just overall seen as one of the greatest movies. But a lot of the times, a lot of these movies that win for Best Picture or earn such high critical praise, they often don't perform so well at the box office. And I think the Oscars get, you know, kind of criticized a lot for this every year because they put in movies to the Best Picture nomination that a lot of people sometimes haven't seen and you look at their box office numbers and you're like, whoa, they made like a 16th of what the Avengers made. So sometimes it is surprising to see such a highly praised movie just not do so well as a box office. And sometimes you wonder why Best Picture nominees are in the Best Picture category when they're not earning as much money as some of these big movies that a lot of people are actually going to see and love. I think when it comes down to it with the Best Picture you know, category, they're trying to find movies that are novel and are doing something that no one else has done before. So that kind of holds true to that. But I don't know, maybe sometimes you have to consider and take into consideration, like, did this movie even do so well at the box office? Like, I wonder if they'll ever add that kind of stipulation to the Best Picture nomination. I don't think they'll do it right now because even with Parasite that just won this year, that didn't do so great at the box office. But I think once it came out and people actually watched it and gave it a chance, they kind of saw, huh, maybe I should have watched this in theaters. Another big cult classic that didn't do so well at the box office was one that was probably in dorm rooms of America all across the country back in 1999, a movie starring Brad Pitt and Edward Norton talking about Fight Club, which is a great movie. And I think the problem with this movie, it was really hard for them to market this one. So the movie had a $63 million budget, but only made $37 million in the course um, in theatrical release. And with this movie, it's so kind of dark, twisted, and sinister that you wonder how you sell this movie. Like, how do you make a trailer, and how do you advertise this movie to people? Like, okay, um, well, it's this really weird guy who has this voice in his head, and he starts a fight club. All right, come watch our movie. And even with the star power like Brad Pitt and Edward Norton, didn't really have any return when it came out into theaters so the director was so determined to kind of make this movie a hit that what he ended up doing was putting in a lot of money into the home release of this movie so he like really strategized how he was going to package this dvd so they put it out they put the director's commentary on this thing and he kind of explained and shed light to the film of what it was actually trying to say in this movie and what it was about and that ended up doing a lot for this movie And it went on to be one of the highest selling DVDs for Fox when it came out again. There's another really big movie that I feel kind of fits in with the Fight Club scenario of not being able to know how to market the movie. It's Dazed and Confused that came out in 1993. And the movie only made about a million dollar profit when it came out back in the day. And Universal, when they put out the movie again, like Fox, they struggled with the marketing struggles. Because here you have essentially like a stoner coming of age movie with these, you know, really raunchy sex scenes. And this humor that you don't really know what the audience is for this one. So that's what led Dazed and Confused to kind of be a flop when it came out. But now we know it as the movie that pretty much put Matthew McConaughey on the map. And like Fight Club, I think once this movie came out on VHS, it was like one of those movies that you would tell your friends about. 
And I think even for me, it was a movie that existed as a VHS that was just passed around from like friend group to friend group. And that's how I first watched it. I remember taking the tape and putting it in the VCR and being like, whoa, this is like a crazy story of these people hanging out and partying. But I could see how there's something really huge and cinematic about it. Like you would go to a movie theater and tell people to go see it. But in your early teenage years, it's seen as a movie like, oh, man, that's such a great movie. And gives us one of the most iconic movie lines from Matthew McConaughey, which is actually the first ever words that he said on film. Like I heard this interview with him when he was talking about, you know, how he got that part where he wasn't even an actor yet. He was just kind of hanging out and doing this other random work back in Austin, Texas, got the part. And then he was trying to put himself in the space of this character. And the line wasn't even written in the movie. So I actually found this clip of Matthew McConaughey talking about that and how this iconic line came to be. We're about to shoot the scene, and it's all improvised. There's not a line not a line written, right? Who's my man? Who's Wooderson? Who's Wooderson? I said, what am I about? I'm sitting I go, well, I'm about my car. And I said, well, man, I'm in my 70s Chevelle. Mm. We got one. Plan to win. I said, I'm about rock and roll. I said, well, I got Ted Nugent's Stranglehold mm. on the 8-track. I got two. Mm. Then I said, I'm about getting high. And I said, well, Slater's riding shotgun. He's always got one rolled up. Say I that. got three. Say that. I'm also about picking up chicks. And I look up and I go, well, there she is. That'd be the fourth. I got three out of four. Mm. All right, all right, all right. So there you go. Those are some box office bombs that went on to be classics. If you have any others to add, just hit me up on Twitter or Instagram at Mike Distro. <laughs> Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at the Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. 
All right, movie review time. Now, it's actually a brand new movie. Look at that. I didn't have to go to the theaters to watch it. It was right there on demand for a whopping $20, and it's called... The King of Staten Island, directed by Judd Apatow, starring Pete Davidson. Now, I'm a pretty big Pete Davidson fan. I like his comedy. I like him on Saturday Night Live. And I've kind of been interested to see how he's, how his whole personality is going to translate into movies. And he did a movie that came out last year that I was interested in. So I'm kind of following him. And I was excited for this one. So let's figure it out. Is it worth spending the $20 to watch this at home? Before I get into my review, here's a little bit of The King of Staten Island. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Don't be, it's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. <laughs> All right, so let's get into this review. A lot to unpack here. So I was excited for this one, like I said earlier. And I think I was excited for it for a couple of reasons. One, because we haven't had anything new in a while. And I was glad that they stuck to putting this one out on demand as opposed to kind of pushing back the release date to get it in theaters. I saw some stuff that Judd Apatow was saying in interviews before the movie came out. He's basically saying, like, it's kind of a movie that everybody needs right now in this kind of pandemic quarantine world of something you can just sit on your couch and watch. So he didn't feel like there was any need to delay the release to, you know, put it out in theaters. And he even said... Which he kind of defends his whole, like, his movies often get criticized for being too long. Like, you could always cut out maybe 40 to 20 minutes of his movies. And he's like, well, it's one maybe you could pause and then come back to, is what he says. I also kind of think that was him going on to defense a little bit because he's like, man, people are going to slam me again for a movie being too long. But anyway, I just had to point it out that this movie is two hours and 17 minutes, which I feel is a long time for a comedy. And I don't like to always criticize movies by saying they're too long, but I just feel like if you can't hold somebody's attention and if at any point in a movie you're like looking how much is left in it, I think it takes a little bit away. So first of all, that that was my kind of when I finished watching it is how I felt. But going into it, let's just talk about what the movie's about. So it's a semi-autobiographical story about Pete Davidson's life. His dad was a firefighter and died on 9-11. And this movie kind of echoes that. It's his character in the movie whose dad also died as a firefighter. And he's kind of now as a 24-year-old has never really been able to move past that because he kind of grew up knowing how awesome his dad was and then had him taken away from him. And he's been struggling with that. He's kind of hasn't really gone a whole lot of places. He's still living with his mom and essentially trying to be a tattoo artist but doesn't even have a job at the beginning of the movie. And that's kind of where the movie stays. It's him hanging out with his friends, just trying to tattoo people and then getting into this quick little ends up getting into a little bit of trouble where he gets this dad who gets mad at him. And that dad ends up being also a firefighter who ends up meeting his mom. And then they two get together and the movie kind of takes away from there of like, oh, you're trying to replace my dad with another guy who is also a firefighter. And the whole movie is kind of him struggling with that relationship forming and also of him trying to get his life together. So first of all, I don't feel like this movie was intended to be a straight-up comedy. I think Judd Apatow kind of said that as he was trying to make a dramatic movie, kind of his most serious movie to date. But I think anything Judd Apatow does, it's kind of going to be seen and packaged as a comedy. So that's when, kind of when you see the trailer, that's the feeling you get for it. So I think it did have some good laughs, especially in the first 15 to 20 minutes, you get those laughs and you get those jokes that kind of you feel like Judd Apatow as a writer, Pete Davidson as a writer on it. You kind of feel their humor in that. And then it kind of gets into this, I feel like kind of convoluted story where it kind of loses what the movie is about, because while it's about Pete Davidson and his struggles 
of not having his dad around and now having this new father figure in his life. It kind of goes in all different kinds of directions with him and his love life, him with his friends, and then him trying to be his own person and have his own job and kind of find his identity in that sense. I just think it gets lost in all that because it never really follows like uh, any kind of direction. And there's some parts of the movie that exist for no other reason than existing, which is how I feel that Judd Apatow just puts too much into his movies. There's like too much scenes of like things that don't really matter. And I feel like kind of had a loss in like the middle to where it kind of didn't even fit the rest of the movie. Like right in the middle of it, it just kind of goes into all these directions and it comes kind of back to that story of him and Bill Burr's character in the movie who's playing the guy dating his mom. It kind of goes away from that. But I get what Jed Apatow is trying to say in this movie. It's trying to be a movie that deals with loss and deals with grief and deals with that idea of losing somebody. And don't get me wrong, I get that. It has some really great emotional moments with that of Pete Davidson kind of getting over and accepting his father's death and also like meeting some of the people who knew him and getting stories out of them. Like I think that part of the movie was actually pretty good, but it takes a long time to get there and it gets lost so many times before you even get to feeling anything that by the time you do get to that kind of nice moment to where like, oh, I actually kind of like this movie, you think it's about to end and then there's still like another 30, 40 minutes left of it. So at any moment that it gets, you know, personal and actually like in depth to the characters, it's lost in all other directions because you don't really care in some points to follow along. That's how I felt watching it. So by no means am I saying this is even a bad movie. It's very, I'd say mediocre, like middle of the path. Like you're not going to watch this and be like, this is terrible. Why am I watching this? But you're also just going to kind of watch just enough to see what happens. But you almost don't even care about the characters in it. And the other thing I kind of just worry or wonder about Pete Davidson is if he's going to get kind of typecast a little bit because he was in another movie that I just watched recently called Big Time Adolescence. And I actually really liked that movie, probably enjoyed it more than I did this one, but I also felt like he was playing the exact same character again. And I don't know, maybe he's just looking for that right role that <laughs> that's kind of him, which I get it's, you know... When you play and you act as a different character, you're going to bring out a lot of who you are. But I feel like he's just that same exact person that you see on SNL that he is in this movie, that he was in the other movie. Like, I like him as an actor. I think he's funny. I think he's a great comedian. But I just don't know if he's going to ever develop into being anything else but playing that same kind of 24, 25-year-old stoner kid who can't get his life together. Like, is that really all he's going to do in movies? And I like the guy. I'd like to see him do a little bit more. And I think maybe that's why I was just a little let down about this movie because I was looking for him to kind of, you know, take that step up into being more of a leading man, a leading comedic role actor type person. And I just don't think he's quite there yet. I, I don't even know if he was like ready for to star in a Judd Apatow movie at this point in his career. So maybe it was a little bit also that I had high hopes going into this one. And was a little bit let down. And also, I was just really hoping that it wasn't going to be another kind of long, drawn-out Judd Apatow movie. I don't know. Maybe it's more enjoyable. Like, if you watch it, like he says, you know, watch half and then watch another half later. But I wanted to sit down and, you know, consume it like I would in the movie theaters. And that's kind of the experience I went into taking this one in. And I felt like if I would have watched it in theaters, I would have left feeling the same way. So I would give it... Oh, man. it's It's so close to crossing that three mark because i don't feel it's bad but i have to give it two and a half out of five tattoos i just don't feel at any point it had my full attention and even though i got some decent laughs out of it in the beginning 
I felt like could have been just a lot stronger and a lot more interesting with even just 40 minutes cut out. Like I think straight up, this would have stuck to that hour and a half, hour 40 kind of comedic kind of pacing. I think it would have been a lot better movie. Again, I'm no director, but, but as a viewer, I just felt like it didn't have enough story to be that long. A little long and unjustified for me. Is it worth the $20? I would have to say no. I think if I had to price it, I'd give it a solid 10 bucks. And that's because me and my girlfriend watched it. So it's essentially us paying five bucks each. So I think 20 bucks is a little high. Maybe wait till you can rent it for like the $5 fee. It's nothing I'm dying to watch again or really tell anybody else to be like, oh, you got to see this movie. So that's where I stand on it. Not worth the 20 bucks. All right. So we have another big round of movie delays, which isn't surprising movie theaters are really just kind of starting to slowly open up around the country and even in Canada a little bit. But it's, of course, with safety precautions and social distancing guides inside the theater. And, you know, some theaters are requiring people to wear a mask. Others are not, which is kind of a weird thing, because when you go into a movie theater, you can be wearing the mask. But of course, if you're going to buy snacks and stuff, you're going to take it off at some point. So I don't know if they've thought of that the whole way through. And also, there's just a bunch of other kind of things that come along not only with people being in the theaters again but how they're making movies right now there's stuff coming out now about there's going to be different ways that you know how close actors can be like can they kiss still on screen can big action fight sequences still still happen with all those people filming so i think that's going to be a lot of a different thing to you know see and and take into consideration when they're making new movies like a bunch of that stuff is it going to just be cgi now how all that stuff's going to work but i think when we're seeing these delays happen now, we're, you know, kind of get upset a little bit about the movies we're, you know, looking forward to being pushed back further and further. But it's also pushing back movies that were scheduled to start filming, getting pushed back further into like 2022, which that's a long ways away. And then you're thinking, well, will they even be able to make those movies the same way now with all these new restrictions? So it's going to be a big domino effect here. So the other movies that got pushed back, the animated live action hybrid Tom and Jerry movie got pushed back from December 23rd to March of next year. So I think it will be interesting to see how all these pieces start to work together as far as getting people back into the theaters. And then when they do start to get people back in and they're starting to put out these new movies, how that's going to reflect box office numbers, which are pretty much non-existent right now. Like they're waiting so they can have more people in the theaters to put out these big blockbuster movies. But when they put them out, are we all going to feel safe enough to go to the theater to hit those numbers they're expecting? Will they pull them? Like what's going to happen with that? And then I'm also starting to wonder about, you know, Oscar season when that rolls back around, like what movies will qualify and then will there really be like a best of list after this year? I feel like everything's just so pushed back and moved over the place. Like, will there really be a best picture contender here? It's going to be like an asterisk mark if those movies end up really coming out. I'm also kind of interested to see how well The King of Staten Island will do with streaming numbers. And if that will kind of wake anybody up to being like, okay, maybe is streaming a valuable thing as we thought it was going to be? I think all these things will kind of play into how movie theaters and movie studios react moving forward. I think the last movie we need to kind of watch the release date will really be important is Disney's Mulan. Like if that actually comes out on July 24th like it's supposed to and everything's cool, I think we'll see everything kind of slowly ramp up and even move up after that. But until then... I think we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with new movies in theaters. All right, and that's the episode for this week. Hope you guys enjoyed that. If you don't mind, tag me on the Instagram story that you listened to the very end and let me know what you thought about the episode and whether you're thinking about watching The King of Staten Island now or not. 
My Instagram shout out of the week goes to at Katie CYR, who said she's been listening to the podcast, getting caught up. So thanks, Katie. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks for being part of the podcast. I will talk to you guys next week. Have a great rest of your week. Later. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-errands pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.